If you haven't already, join me at Romans chapter 15. We're nearly uh, through Romans, as it turns out. It's pretty amazing to always to get to the, to the end. Perhaps we will. That's the plan soon. Uh, I will finish chapter 15, Lord willing, next Sunday. And then um, I have two Sundays out of the pulpit, uh, March 12th and and March 19th, uh, in between which I will be away uh, doing fun, some fun things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I should say, it's not like a surgery or something. It's, uh, I'm going to New York, <laughs> New York City with Avery, our 20-year-old daughter, and we're going to do all sorts of fun things, a dream trip for her. I'm going to see about 2,500 musicals that week, so... Uh, we're we're going to have a lot of fun, uh, and I'm going to try not to be too much of a downer uh, while, we're, while I'm providing security for my daughter. <laughs> so that's where I'll be. But then on the, on the 26th, uh, should uh, we return, uh, then I'll start in chapter 16. I don't think that'll take very long, and then uh, we'll launch into Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, once we're finished with Romans. This is something like 54 sermons in Romans today. So we'll end up around 60 there. Okay, Romans 15, 22 to 29, Paul's gospel plan. So the main message of Paul's letter to the Romans has just finished at Romans 15, verse 13. We mentioned that last week. And we can sort of tell with Paul... Um, that, that the letter's drawing to a close. We can tell by the topics and the tone. He kind of shifts from, from maybe doctrine and then, and then application, and then all of a sudden he's talking about his plans and he's greeting people and, and that sort of thing, mentioning prayer concerns. He, he did work through the weighty theological truths of the gospel of Jesus in the first 11 chapters, as you know, then he, then he transitioned for a, a long period through chapter 15, verse 13, into a lot of practical stuff. Now Paul begins to speak of his personal relationships with those who will receive the letter. He describes his personal situation as an apostle, his aspirations, his plans for the future. We'll wonder uh, and ask whether those things came to pass or not and how, and all under a consideration of the sovereignty of God and some principles about how that works when a man makes his plans. And, and well, then what happens? Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. The Lord is sovereign over these things. Well, continuing on into Romans 15 this morning, verses 22 to 29, Paul does here discuss his, his gospel plans his future missionary plans, explaining his desire to go on to Spain. He hasn't even been to Rome yet, but he, he wants to leapfrog off of Rome and, and continue west into the outermost parts of the known world. His desire to go to Spain and visit the Roman church on the way to Spain. He's been delayed, he'll say. He's already alluded to this, but he's been delayed by God in coming to them, the divine passive there, he, he's been delayed, he's been prohibited, prevented from coming by God uh, in coming to them because of the work all around 
the Mediterranean and into the interior in various places. That's what he's been doing. But now there is an opportunity to come to Rome, and, and we're picking up clearly that Paul sees Rome as a stop on the way further and further west, perhaps, as I already mentioned, even to the ends of the earth, uh, to Spain, to Spain. I, I did read, though, that um, uh, astute travelers of the day were aware of Britain and uh, east, uh, sorry, Western Europe, um, but uh, what Paul knew or where he further wanted to go. We, we, we don't know. He only mentions Spain. Anyways, Rome, like Antioch before it, would, in Paul's mind, make a, a good base of operations from which Paul could continue to do his missionary push. He, he was always tethered to a home church. We'll, we'll touch on that. He was always tethered to a home church and supplied by it. I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that or understand that from from the book of Acts in particularly, but he was always tethered to a church. He sees Rome as being this. He was always supplied by a home church. We'll come and touch on that a little bit as we go. And we'll be picking up on gospel principles along the way as Paul shows us not just what he's doing, what his plans are, but his reasons for and thinking behind doing these things and doing them in these ways. In other words, these are principles and priorities not just for Paul. It's not just happenstance that he mentions this and that. This is God's Word. And so these are principles and priorities for each of us and for us as a church family that we can, that we can glean, that we can learn from. So let's let God teach us and feed us, both as individual Christians this morning, to think like the apostle, and as a church family that desires to more and more reflect God's Word, God's will, and God's ways. Let's pray though, once again, before we read the text, and then we'll work through it. Well, we'll read it and and work through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We look to you once again, and we're so grateful that you have spoken, that you did not just merely leave us to discern from the stars your power, your creativity, your very existence, but you gave us a word a very clear word about yourself, about your will, your, your plan of redemption, your son, your church, your history now, all this time, or certainly during, during those days which we see lived out in the church since. How blessed we are to have a word from you. And so we look to you. Where else would we, where else would we look? to grow in the knowledge about you, about Christ, about ourselves, about the church, about our purpose, about your glory. So help us now as we look at Paul's gospel plans and help us to learn to think more like him and to live more like him, which is to say, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 15, let's start at 14. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Our text starts at 22. Verse 14 gives us a little bit of context there. We worked through those verses last week. 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. 
But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. But they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ, the holy and inerrant word of God. Uh, three, three points today, and it's all about uh, the direction, the, the geographical direction of Paul's explanation of his, his gospel plans. Um, number one, finally to Rome, but soon to Spain. Finally to Rome, but soon to Spain, verses 22 through 24. Well, Paul had been prevented, again, uh, hindered, that is, by God, the, the divine passive there, who had prevented him. Well, God, God in his sovereign uh, prevention. Paul had been prevented from visiting Rome because he was busy doing what he'd called, been called to do, which was planting churches in the area extending from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. That's what he wrote in, in verse 19. But since now there is no place for Paul left to go across the Mediterranean where Christ has not already been preached, that's what he says, and we understand this, that he's saying his work of pioneering missionary and church planting was finished, that the home bases established, the groundwork having been laid, the workers going out from the bases. In that sense, his work is done. So he has already finished his work throughout all those regions. So the time has come, he discerns, for him to head west to Rome 
and then beyond, something he's desired, he says, to do for many years. He has a vision to push uh, into the unknown world, the, 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 the far reaches of the known world to take the gospel of, of Christ there, but he, he, takes it, he takes it concentric circle by concentric circle, establishing bases and then, and then pushing out past. And, and certainly such a trip, as far as he can know, uh, as far as we know, would take Paul into regions where the gospel has not yet been preached. But on his way to Spain, he will stop in Rome. It's strategic with the church there. And, and where the church there presumably will be able to assist him in his new preaching endeavors further west. And having heard of the church's great faith, if you remember, hopefully Paul will be able to spend some time with the Roman Christians and encourage them and witness God's work in their midst for himself and confirm that what he is preaching is what they believe and that they will embrace him and send him. He wants to hang with the churches in Rome. Who else is in Rome? What other sorts of people might, if you think like an American, uh, who would you want to see if you went, went to Rome? Or what, what would we seemingly maybe forgive Paul for saying here. I'm going to Rome because I want to see the Caesar. I want to see the Colosseum. I want to see the Senate. I want to see the theater. I want to see the important people. The people in charge of the Roman Empire. I want an audience with the triumvirate, with the, the leaders, the stars. Here's a principle and a note. And uh, just trying this out today, um, I'm going to stop here and there and just say a, a principle. And, and then we'll keep going. That'll happen a handful of times. Here's one. The fellowship of the people of God is more to be desired than the friendship of emperors or kings. The fellowship of the people of God, the church, is more to be desired than the friendships of emperors or kings. Paul was going to Rome, the seat of the great Roman Empire, the home of the Caesars. But Paul was not looking to the great of the world to help him out or to send him on his way or to supply his need. Oh, they could have. Lavishly. Nor did he want their friendship, by the way. Friendship with the world is... You've heard something like that. Enmity with God. His friends were the Christians, and he wanted to be with them and be helped on his missionary way by them. And I think we're to learn from his example. There's a buried principle there. The world will not help you do God's work. Oh, for a time perhaps, but then you owe them. They own you. The world will entice you, use you, betray you, let you down. Only God's people will share your godly desires for doing godly things and support you relentlessly. The fellowship of the people of God is more to be desired than the friendship of emperors or kings. Learn that. 
help. He, he wants help from them, from the Roman Christians. And Paul knows again that they will be able to help him on his way. In this case, to help is to send Paul on his way with funds and supplies, perhaps also with traveling companions. This is what happened with the original sending churches, particularly Antioch. That's where all the men came from that he would then leave behind all through the Mediterranean. They come from Antioch and then, and then from the churches that, that would be planted and then men would go with and then he'd leave them. I'll, I'll stop here and say something about that. People have this idea of Paul that he was this uh, lone ranger missionary and that somehow that could somehow be a model for our own disconnectedness from the church or going around. I've even had people come tell me that they think they have sort of a Pauline ministry and they're, they're not connected to any church and they, they, were, they were sort of encouraging various churches but not committed to any of them. But that is fundamentally to misunderstand Paul's ministry entirely. He is completely beholden to the churches that send him. He would send letters back. They would send refreshment and, and, and reinforcements all the way around. I'm going like this because in my mind I'm thinking about the, the Mediterranean and then Macedonia and then Achaia. He, he, he would send help. They would send money. He would tent make until he got more money. Then he could, then he could teach all day. Do you understand? Like if you read Acts and read it all the way through, this is the ministry of Paul. Uh, intensely, intimately connected to the church. And here's Paul wanting the church at Rome to understand him, to share in the, the truth of the gospel, to affirm one another, and then for them to send him. This is the new, this is the new base in his mind to whom he would be beholden and they to him. This is the apostolic ministry of Paul, the, the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. Not some freewheeling a trailblazing, as it were, solo thing. He was a trailblazer, pioneering. But man, he, he, built the, he planted churches. He built up the church. He was beholden to the church. He was sent by churches. He built up elders. He placed elders in churches. If you don't know that about Paul, you don't really understand what he was doing. So, Another aspect of this and a principle, another principle. God could supply his missionaries' needs miraculously. It could, it could have been that Paul was a solo guy and that God sort of dropped, uh, you know, care packages along the way uh, miraculously or in the belly of a camel or something. Uh, you know, that sounds messy, but it, at least it would be Miraculous, I guess. He could have done it that way any number of ways. But how does he do it? As I've just described. As we can discern from the book of Acts and how he's behaving here. He usually does the supplying of his missionary work and his church planting work through the gifts of his people, the church. God is a God of miracles. Paul himself had not lagged behind the other apostles in being a channel through which God performed miracles. He would write about this. It would happen. God could have provided miraculously for Paul, but he didn't. Instead, when Paul started out proclaiming the gospel around the Mediterranean, he was supported by the church at Antioch. 
Later, when he went from Macedonia into Greece, he was supported by the church at Philippi. You can read about this in Philippians 4. Here he looks for support from the church at Rome. This is strategic and wise and God's design. Paul liked to work from a church base and then branch out, both in terms of his own work and in the building up of leaders and workers both to help him and to serve the new churches. And then he would, he would leave them, go out ahead, write back, wait for support. And Paul wanted his church base to know him well and be heartily in agreement with his message. It was not his own message to just have into of himself and no one could challenge it. No one could, could understand it. No one could... No, he, he would, he's put it in the letter to the Romans. Not in its totality, but in a, in, a, in a robustness, isn't it? This is what I teach. This is the gospel I preach. And I'm coming to you, and we're going to go over all this. And I'm going to make sure that we're on the same page, and then I want you to send me with it. This model even holds today. All of this. God calls his servants to the missionary task, but he also places a duty to support them on those who remain at home for churches to come alongside and get to know and, and approve of and then send and support missionaries. That is your duty if, if you have a, a regular income and are not yourself serving on a foreign or other missionary field and you're in a local church that thinks this way. Has God blessed you with material things? And is this your base? Are you provided for financially? Then remember your local church and remember the missionaries we support. Remember that although God could supply their needs miraculously, He could drop these things right out of the sky. But He's chosen to do it through you. This is the model. This is God's design. Now, if... um, Moving on, if, if Paul actually made it to Spain as he desired, the only way this could have occurred is if Paul was able to secure his release from what we know was his house arrest in Rome later. Recall that the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome awaiting his hearing before Caesar. I'll touch on this a couple times, certainly at the end. That's Acts 20, uh, by the way. And in fact, uh, a number of Pauline scholars believe that Paul did indeed make it as far as Spain, only to be arrested again after returning to Rome when he was put to death by Nero during that horrific persecution of the church which began in 66 AD. Hindered, prevented. That's worth a thought or two. Paul said he had until now been prevented from doing what he wanted to do, which was to come to Rome. He'd been hindered. But now a window seemed to open. He's he's discerning where the Lord's leading him, what the Lord would, would say, no, 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 yes, this way. He's discerning his way through this. It had been closed off. God had closed it off, but now it's open. Principle. This one, I think, is low-hanging fruit, but there it is embedded in these verses we tend to just dismiss, you know. Principle, when an opportunity 
of serving Christ in one direction is closed to us, we ought to turn to another. Keep serving. If you are serving God and your work is not done, keep at it where you are. Be content where God has planted you and serve. There's plenty to do. Don't get restless or discontented. But if one opportunity has closed, and there's lots of ways to discern that, external things, they fire you, that would be a way <laughs> that I would know, you know, that my work is done. Other external circumstances, people stop coming, the giving goes away. Just speaking of my own sense of external, but also internal, like, do I want to do it? Uh, counselors, should you keep doing it? But if one opportunity has closed, look around for something or someone else. The needs are, are great, and the opportunities are endless. Find a, We've said this. We, we've had it in the bulletin recently. What should I do? I don't know what to do in the church. doesn't seem, I don't know. There's no list of duties to do that I could just, just put my name in there. We don't, we don't quite do it that way. But find a need to meet. Find another Christian to serve or disciple. The needs are endless. But you must come in. You must come close. You must begin to ask and discern. There's plenty to do. But when there's not, find another way. Keep serving. You, you do not conclude, I guess my time of serving Christ or the church is over. I know people very close to me, actually, who think that way. I'm retired from serving in the church. What are you talking about? Moving on. Paul, again, always thinking this way, does not plan on a permanent residence in Rome. I giggle while I was reading it because it starts to feel almost offensive towards them. You know, because you want him to say, man, I, you know, just terminate, everything's terminal on Rome. Like, I, that's the thing I've been wanting forever, and I can't wait to see you guys, and I'm never leaving. You know, just, you almost want him to say that or think maybe they would feel comforted by that. But he actually keeps saying, I'm going to Spain by way of you. I'm just going to wave uh, on my way to Spain. Could you, could you pay? It almost feels like that. Like, could you, could you reach in and grab me a stack of cash as I'm driving through town? on my way to Spain. Of course, it's not like that, but it begins to feel like that. He wants to spend some time in Rome with the Christian church there, but he wants to move on to Spain and keep on doing the work of pioneer missionary and church planning work. He doesn't want to, to lock in and get comfortable in Rome. He, he wants to move on. But he also knew that for the Roman church to support him, they would need to really know him and understand his teaching and his doctrine, his emphases, and know that he truly was representing Jesus Christ and the one true gospel of God. So he articulated all of this in some detail in the letter so that the Romans would comprehend the basics of his gospel and so that they could reply to critics who distorted what Paul taught and to lay the groundwork for his visit where he would flesh this all out and answer all their questions he sought to bless the Roman Christians for sure, in other words. But Spain was always on his, on his viewfinder. This is Paul, Paul's gospel plans. 
point two. But actually, first to Jerusalem. But first to Jerusalem, verses 25 through 27. And this is somewhat shocking. Certainly not if, 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 if you're sort of aware of the letters to the Corinthians and then Acts and this thing with this offering that seems to come up all the time. He's, collecting, he's always collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. So if you're sort of aware of that as constant background, this is not surprising to you, but, it, but if just in the immediate context, I, I want to come to Rome, I'm coming to Rome, a window's opened, I'm off to Spain, but I'm going to Jerusalem. And, 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 and with a Subaru, that would be quite uh, daunting. Uh, he's in Corinth writing. So, well, let's read 25 and 26. We'll talk about Subarus in a minute. 25 and 26. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, <laughs> bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor uh, to or among the saints at Jerusalem. So all that, and then, oh, but I'm going to Jerusalem. So, so it's just to, to put a fine point on this. It's surprising, I think, just in the context of reading this, to find that Paul, who wants to go west, says he's going west to Rome and then beyond to Spain, is in fact going east to Jerusalem. This would be from Corinth, about a thousand miles eastward, adding 2,000 miles to a journey to Spain. From Corinth to Rome is not too bad. From Corinth to Rome to Spain is a pretty good trip. But to go from Corinth to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to Rome by foot and boat and camel is no small thing, no small commitment. But what's occurred uh, that Paul has to finish and make good on is that uh, region-wide, Gentile church-wide, all around the, the Mediterranean-wide offering that he's been initiating and collecting for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. The Gentile Christians of the provinces of Achaia and Macedonia, he says here, he doesn't mention everyone, but they, they've been taking offerings all throughout the region. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians, particularly chapters 8 and 9. Um, but they want to take part in this work of helping the Jerusalem Christians. The collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, we'll talk in just a second about why they're, they're poor and needy at this particular time, this particular season. But the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem was central in Paul's thinking. That's why it comes up everywhere in his letters and in Acts. He's deeply devoted to it. He promoted it steadily and felt compelled to even lead a group from among the Gentile churches to deliver this gift to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, even though he put himself at risk of prison, even death. He knows full well, yeah, Rome and Spain, but he's going to Jerusalem and dangerous travels and the risk of the Jews there who had been pursuing him at every stop and pestering him. This was worth it to Paul, though. 
and he gladly took the risk. He had several motives, three of them. First, there was just simply a real need. Famine had struck Palestine in 46 to 48 A.D., and word was spreading that the church was suffering. And so, it's just simply on that level, well, let's help the suffering Christians, our brothers and sisters. Second, prophets, Paul would be very well aware of this. He's been quoting from Isaiah all throughout Romans. Prophets had foretold that Gentiles would come to Jerusalem, bringing their wealth, Isaiah 60. Is this a fulfillment of that? Well, Paul is very well aware of Isaiah and how the ministry to the Gentiles through him is part of the fulfillment of that. We were just working on that in the verses before ours for today. Given all that we know, it's very likely that Paul interpreted these Old Testament texts to to prophesy the conversion of the Gentiles and then the bringing of their gifts to Jerusalem, signifying their inclusion into the people of God. I would not at all put this past Paul. I think he's thinking that way. Third, this one is more on the surface. This one is more like, well, we know, because he says it quite explicitly. Such gifts signaled the coming together of Jew and Gentile in the one family of God through Christ. And given the significant theme throughout Romans of Jews and Gentiles coming together in Christ, we can see why this offering meant so much to Paul in his calling as apostle to the Gentiles. Apostle to the Gentiles. Here he is leading Gentile Christians, bringing help to Jewish Christians who are suffering. What could be a, a bigger fulfillment, a bigger display of the, of the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Certainly, Paul is primarily about the, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we can see how serious he was and intent to display the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he would. So for those reasons, he's doing this, at least those reasons. So Romans 15 shows Paul's drive to unify the church. This unity was at least ethnic, Jews and the Gentiles, socioeconomic. Here are people who have, giving to those who have not. First under the household of faith are Paul's words, Galatians 6. But above all, of course, this, this unity was spiritual, those barriers breaking down and coming into the one Christ through the one Spirit. To this day, the gospel is the best foundation. What, else, what other could there be? The best foundation for, for human reconciliation because it brings humans together spiritually in Christ. There's, there's nothing else that can do that. So here's a principle and a call, another principle. Love the unity of the church and its diversity. God, that is, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is what I am saying. God is gathering His people from within every tribe and nation and tongue, calling them out into one people through the proclamation of the good news for sinners concerning the light to the Gentiles, Jesus Christ. All of this, which is baked into the foundation of the gospel's purpose and advance, So love the unity of the church and its diversity. 
and rejoice that there is one people of God, not two or twenty. There's one. But always remember that this isn't first about diversity itself, but about the love and glory and goodness and grace of God, which He shows with no partiality. Love the unity of the church and its diversity. In verse 27, Paul describes the heart and attitude of the Gentiles in this regard. What are they thinking in this gift? Verse 27, they were pleased to do it. Hopefully you call to mind 2 Corinthians 8. With great joy, from joy, they gave, they asked to give again. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They were pleased to do it, our verse 27. And this is interesting. He says, and indeed they owe it to the Jewish Christians. The Gentile Christians owe it to the Jewish Christians. Hmm. He goes on, verse 27. For, now this is what he means by that they owe it. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the Jewish Christians' spiritual blessings, they, the Gentile Christians, ought also to be of service to the Jewish Christians in material blessings. You benefit from spiritually, help them materially. Two um, dimensions there of the gift from the standpoint of the givers. They first were, were pleased to do it. God loves a cheerful giver. You know that? Those from Macedonia and Achaia and around the region, they gave because it was, he writes, their pleasure. They were pleased to do it. He's emphasizing their delight in giving. And he's underlining the truth that genuine giving is never merely a duty. It's also a delight and a joy. A delight and a joy. God loves a cheerful giver. But we can't just uh, deny that he mentions duty here. He does mention duty. Um, so I think that since Paul mentions both delight and duty here in the same verse, we should not conclude that duty and joy or delight are mutually exclusive. They're not. Paul emphasizes twice in Romans 15, 27 that Gentiles, Gentile Christians, stand indebted to Jews because the spiritual blessings of the gospel stem from the Jews. The debt here is not a legal one. It's a, it's a spiritual debt because of the blessings received through the Jews. That is, Gentile sinners are saved by means of the blessings given to the Jews and because of and through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Gentile believers should from joy be particularly eager to assist the Jerusalem saints materially. They ought to. They owe it to them. And they are pleased to do it. They're just both there. They're just both there. It is a, another basic principle that we support financially those who minister to us spiritually. That's from Paul again, Galatians chapter 6. But Paul, of course, here is applying that principle on that large scale, isn't he? 
Jerusalem brought the Gentiles the word of God concerning Jesus and salvation. Salvation is of the Jews. It's from the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. He's the Messiah. So why wouldn't Gentile Christians now want to lavish gifts upon the Jewish Christians? Those whom the gospel sets free will find themselves filled with gratitude and desiring to help out their brothers and sisters whenever necessary. We want to see that develop in us. We want to see that grow in us individually and as a church. So having been given spiritual blessings from the Jews, the Gentiles can now share their material blessings with them. And so this gift that Paul aims to deliver, he, he wants his readers, he wants, he's going to Jerusalem to make sure this is communicated and understood. He wants to put this identifying mark on the gift. That is, he wants it rightly understood. It is an expression from Gentile Christian hands into Jewish Christian hands of Jewish-Gentile oneness in Christ. It is a sign of unity between, if you will, the first generation and the second generation of the Christians and the spreading of it in fulfillment of the prophecies to the Gentiles and the whole world. It is an indication that there is one Christian movement in the world, not two, not twenty, one gospel, one Christ, one God and Father of our Lord Jesus and Savior, Jesus Christ, one Spirit, one church, one hope. Paul is, is aware and wants it to be clear that this gift signifies all of that. That's why he's going. That's why he's risking everything to take it. He, yes, wants to proclaim the gospel, but he wants to display the fruit of it really bad and beautifully. Point three, and pretty briefly, but seriously, I'm heading for Spain. That's the last two verses of our text. (laughs) All of this, but seriously, I'm actually heading for Spain, Uh, verses 28 and 29. So even though going to Jerusalem comes first, Paul still hopes to come to Rome, verse 28. Look there. When therefore I have completed this, this gift, the delivery, the travels to Jerusalem, and have delivered or sealed to them um, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He, he means to deliver it safely, make sure it's understood rightly, then it's off to Rome and then off to Spain. In his mind, that's what the plan is. He has his eye on the future. I will leave for Spain by way of you, he writes. Just as he had once again made Antioch a base, and then Corinth, and then Ephesus, Philippi. So now he wants to use Rome as a base from which to travel further west. He had ambitions, gospel plans, to the very end of his life. There was no stopping him. Did you hear anything in his plans there about retiring? About hanging up his Bibles or whatever, he's, whatever a missionary would do. I'm going to hang up my sandals, and I, I'm, I'm going I'm to go uh, to, uh, to Crete, and I'm going I'm to spend the rest of my days watching the, the sea lap in on the, on the beach. I've earned it. You hear nothing like this. Another lesson for us. Gospel ambition, gospel plans to the very end of life. 
Oh, we may slow down. We may have less to work with. Our bodies will fail. There's no retiring from gospel plans and fruitfulness. There's no retiring. Find a way to serve. Find a way to pray. Find a way to bless. And lastly, he will not come empty-handed to Rome. He says in verse 29, I know that, he says, he writes, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Little did he know, little did he know as he wrote this, that that blessing would be seen most fully in his chains, in his chains. Whoever plans for chains, but they would be in Paul's future, wouldn't they? Let's close then with that one last word and principle from these verses from Paul's uh, winding gospel plans. It has to do with chains. The Jerusalem visit followed God's plan, but not Paul's. He delivered his gift, but then what happened? Do you know? He was arrested in Jerusalem, just, just right on the heels of, of delivering the gift. After two years in prison, Paul finally arrived in Rome in chains. Roman courts apparently acquitted him, and again, we aren't certain that he ever did reach Spain, but he, he may have near the end if he was able to be freed of his Roman house arrest for a time. None of this was in his plans. House arrest, chains, two years more in Jerusalem. Even so, Paul risked his evangelistic mission in order to deliver a gift that would, by, by action, by concrete action, establish the unity of the worldwide church. And here's the principle I just want to close with about that, about these chains. Although the task remains unchanged, God often accomplishes its fulfillment in ways we don't plan or anticipate or desire. So we have to make our plans, ambitious gospel plans with regard to the church, with regard to evangelism, with regard to mission support, and so forth. We have to be flexible, though, for God's ways are not our ways, and He frequently accomplishes His purposes in ways we could not have predicted or even imagined or even wanted again. Who wants chains, shackles? Who would have thought that God's way of making the Jewish people into a great nation would have been bringing them to Egypt in the days of Joseph and later bringing them into slavery? Who, who predicted that humanly? Or who would have supposed that God's way of bringing Paul to Rome, even as he writes, I'm coming to Rome, he has no idea at the writing how he would get there. That God's way of bringing Paul to Rome would have been through arrest in Jerusalem, followed by that two-year imprisonment at Caesarea, then culminating in his own strange, even personal appeal to be tried in Rome by Caesar, which finally sealed that journey to Rome, but in chains. There's no possible way he could have conceived that that's how he would get to Rome. 
So Paul lived his life, his Christian life, making big plans, but rested all the while in the gracious and wise plan of God for his life. You see that. I have learned to be content, he wrote. God's ways are not our ways. Be prepared for new things and for unexpected circumstances and for suffering. Think like Paul. Plan like Paul. And be ready. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray that through your servant Paul, by your spirit, that you, this your word, that you would affect us with it. You would impact our hearts and minds, that this would affect how we think about our lives, how we think about plans, how we think about the church, mission work. So much here to consider. Above all, we pray that you would be growing us and be getting glory for yourself. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.